0: If you saw the first edition of the Spring Cypress Epistle, actually raise your hands if you know what I'm talking about. Okay, if you don't have your hands raised, check your inbox. I'm able to check the stats, and only 53% of you opened it. So that means 47% of you haven't opened it yet. But only three of you had it bounced back, so I have correct email addresses. Anyway, check your inbox. But if you saw the first edition of the Spring Cypress Epistle, and see how coy I'm being, Epistle, get it? Like Epistle? Anyway, uh, it loses something when you've got to explain it. But anyway, uh, we're going to be diving into a study of the book of Ruth. It's a beautiful story. But one of the things that we often miss in the English is the fact that the story itself is scandalous. And it's scandalous beyond simply that... She goes to him at night. Her very being is scandalous. David, at the end of the story, David, you know, King David, that's scandalous. And why? Well, one of the things you'll find with me as your pastor, I do not shy away from the tough passages. We're going to look at a passage today. This is one of the passages that if if your kids go to state university and go to a a, a world religions class, they're going to look at this passage and say, see, the Bible is full of contradiction. We can either pretend it's not, or we can confront it head on. And I'm the kind of guy who likes to confront things head on. So hopefully you're going to say amen to that, about this, anyway. (laughs) So, if you would please look with me at your copy of God's Word to the fifth book in the Bible, Deuteronomy, chapter 23, as we read verses 3 through 6. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam the son of Baor from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you. Because the Lord your God loved you. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. Wow. Brothers and sisters, this, even this, is God's word to you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for your word. We confess that passages like this seem out of date or irrelevant or embarrassing or scary or something. Something other than good. We ask, Father, that you would help us to see both sides of the coin here and to savor your word in its fullness for us. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so like I said a minute ago, we're going to be diving into the book of Ruth starting next week. And today... Is sort of related to that study in that it's a, pre- it's a prologue. We're going to be looking at the scandal behind the book of Ruth because the book indeed is scandalous. Now, as we consider the book of Ruth, it's a wonderful story. In fact, I would wager that most of you think of it as a great romance. And I am so sorry to bust your bubble, but it's not a romance. In fact, I challenge the very assumptions you have about the book. Namely, the book is not even really about Ruth, though it bears her name. You want to know who the book of Ruth is about? Naomi. The book of Ruth is about the restoration of Naomi. Want evidence? Naomi is the only character who's developed. If you think about it, Ruth is Ruth. She's a paragon of virtue. Boaz is Boaz. He too is a virtuous man, and he stays that way from beginning to end. They're very consistent. But but Naomi, look at how she is at the beginning of the book. She's depressed and bitter. She changes her name to reflect that. But then as as she experiences God's grace, her character changes. And she flourishes and she begins to show signs of life. And by the end, what happens? Does the book end with Ruth happily getting married, living happily forever, ever after? No. It ends with Naomi. Naomi. Having this child, and if you know the Leverett Law systems, that child gets to functionally, legally be considered her child. At the beginning of the book, God appears to have taken everything from Naomi. That's what she thinks. And by the end, God has given everything back. The spotlight completely comes back to her. She's mentioned more, almost twice as often as Ruth or Boaz. And in fact, we'll see that we, we have Ruth and we have Boaz coming together to be the hands and feet that God uses to bring Naomi back to a place of fullness. And, and that's what this story is about. Bringing people back to a place of fullness in the Lord. There are many times in which we feel that God has taken Everything. That God's best for us has passed us by. And we lose sight of the fact that God has ordained his people to be his hands and feet. Or in the language that's used in the book of Ruth, the wings of the Almighty under whom we take rest. Just like a mother hen puts her wings over her chicks. So the challenge that we have as we study the book of Ruth is how can we serve faithfully to be the hands and feet, the wings of the Almighty, to be a blessing to his people when they're feeling empty? That's what the book of Ruth is about, and that's what it asks. But before we can get there, we have to come face to face with the fact that the book of Ruth is offensive to its original hearers. Have you ever noticed that in the book of Ruth, Ruth is more often than not referred to as Ruth the Moabite? You ever notice that? Ruth the Moabite. Ruth the Moabite. Ruth the Moabite. Over and over and over. Why? Why? Well, because of passages like this that we just read. The author wants to basically stick it in his his hearer's eye that they can't get around the fact that she's a Moabite. And it causes them to have a disrupted equilibrium. The book of Ruth was most likely written after the post-exile period during the ministry of Ezra and Nehemiah. And think in terms of the context Jesus faced in his ministry. The Jews had become extremely nationalistic, extremely ethnocentric. And we see that even the seeds of that had been sowed in Ezra and Nehemiah. So that they come back from exile, having forsaken the idols of Canaan, and replaced it with the idol of their own ethnicity. And so they, in the book of Ezra, they misinterpret and misapply this passage. Where they take this passage as justification to push aside every foreign wife. And we see this incredible, deep-seated, ethnocentric pride taking root. And into that, the author wants to remind people, what about Ruth? Ruth? The Moabite and David the great-grandson of a Moabite and then for us Jesus who stands in that line the Moabite what's the deal well have you ever had a situation where two people are talking and something seemingly innocent gets said but that innocent phrase doesn't appear to be interpreted innocently by the people in the, in the conversation. And, and, and there's a reaction. And the, the phrase that's said or the word that's said seems innocent to you, but it's, it's not innocent to the people that are in the conversation precisely because for them there's a history. And so that phrase or that word or, or that sentiment, whatever it is, sets off a whole memory of a backstory. Well... This is what Moses is reminding the people of here. That from the very beginning, the people of Moab had been hostile to them. Of course, in verse 3, no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly. This takes you back to Genesis 19, where they are the products of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. And it just goes downhill from there. In Deuteronomy 2, when they're entering, when they're on their way to the promised land, God tells the people, hey, you're related to the people of Moab, so so don't don't harm them. Stay on the road. Don't go and pillage their fields. Don't, Don't take their livestock. Just go peacefully and quietly through their land. Pass through their land quietly. And the Moabites won't let them. In fact, they come out to fight. They hire Balaam to curse them. When that doesn't work, we see that they try to get the Israelites to get themselves cursed by enticing the Israelites to idolatry. And it seems to work for a bit. In the Wild West period of the Judges, one of their first oppressors was a king of Moab, Eglon. And if you remember from the book of Judges, Eglon was a fat man. And if you remember, who's he killed by? Ehud, the left-handed judge. Remember, Ehud is left-handed. He had showed his right hand, because most people are right-handed, there was no weapon in it, and he gets up close and he sticks them with a knife, runs them through. Pretty graphic story. But one of their first oppressors was a Moabite king. And then on and on throughout all of redemptive history, the Moabites are persistently and consistently revealed to be enemies of the people of God, so much so that the prophet Zephaniah predicts, the ultimate destruction of Moab. All right, so here you are, a people who are under the ban because they are hostile and and they they are recalcitrant. They are not repentant. They have committed themselves to opposing the people of God and so they are under the ban. So how is it then that Ruth the Moabite gets to become a part of the assembly with her great-grandson, becoming the arguably greatest king of the old covenant, David, the one with whom there's a covenant made about the Messiah of the earth. How is that? Because we believe in the infallibility and the er inerrancy of God's word. So how can God here exclude a Moabite and then a few chapters later, a few pages later in our English Bible, accept a Moabite? Is that an inherent contradiction? The reality of this passage is that God does exclude some people. But the mistake that we bring to the table and that the the Jews of the later post-exile period brought to the table is that we think that when it talks about a people, it's talking about a genetic code. If you think about being an American... What does it mean to be an American? Is it where where your mama happened to, to deliver you? Is it the nation in which you have a citizenship? Or does it mean to be an American that you've bought into a cultural outlook, a mindset, a way of thinking and behaving and believing? Now, depending upon the context, we could say all those are possible answers, When I was in Germany, stationed there, I had a doctor, and this doctor was a civilian doctor attached to the military, and this doctor was dreading coming back to America because their kids had been there since before kindergarten. They had gone to German schools. They had grown up in Germany. And because they grew up in Germany, they thought, they reasoned. They had a sense of humor. They had an aesthetic that was German even when they spoke English they had been in Germany so long that they had a German accent with their English now tell me are these kids Americans or are they Germans exactly (laughs) and brothers and sisters hear me that is how race was construed up until the modern times Astonishingly, people don't seem to get it. The way we construe race was was an invention of the Nazis. Race typically only historically meant a group of people, so that's why they could speak of in in, in the scholastic era of the Christian race. There's no race of Christians; it's just a group of people that that have common traits. So, but back in the Old Testament, you're you're a Moabite or you're an Ammonite or you're a Babylonian, or you're a Persian, not based upon what country you have a citizenship in. That, that's a late development from the Greeks. It's whose culture do you share? Which is why people are oftentimes referred to as sons or daughters of a foreign god. Because there's this inherent cultural aspect of identity. Identity. And it's that identity that God is barring right here people who want to share that identity and now we're getting down to the crux of it understand that right here in in deuteronomy 23 he is talking about the very real aspect that there would be ammonites and or moabites who would want to try to dwell in and with and among the people they wanted to be with the people of god But they didn't want to become the people of God. They wanted to exist in and with and around the people of God. And yet do so on the basis and as Moabites. Cherishing their Moabite gods. Operating out of their Moabite assumptions. With their Moabite priorities. And believe you me. The Moabite tendencies were terrible. Chemosh. Their chief deity was a horrible thing that demanded child sacrifice. Temple prostitution, the works. And in there, there's a warning for us. I got to get to the warning before I get to the grace. Here's the warning. Throughout the history of the church... There is a a thing among religious people that there are people who want to associate with the church because of its psychological effects, the the psychological benefits of faith or the social benefits of being associated with the church, a a free support system, uh, meals, whatever. There are people who want to be associated with the church and yet they want to live their lives as Moabites. Hear me now. The warning of Scripture is that if you think that you can be in with and around the people of God and maintain your Moabitish ways, you are deceived. Turn to Jesus. He accepts people from everywhere. But there are those people who look at a passage like this and unfortunately say see i knew it god doesn't accept just everybody and may, maybe i've opposed the work of god or maybe i've done something but maybe i'm maybe i'm under the ban god is more concerned about where you're going than where you've been and just like ruth if you grew up and you've made some terrible decisions or you've, or you've had some terrible things happen, but you seek the God of Israel and you become a convert and you buy in and you become part of the people of God, then you are a true Israelite. You are a Hebrew of Hebrews. You are one of God's children regardless of your past. And you want to know why it sticks the the, the original hearer in the eye? Because there's always been two Israels. There's always been two churches. There's the external. There are the people who will never look beyond the tattoos on your arm or, or the scars on your face or the clothes you wear. There are the people who will always look at that stuff, the kind of haircut you have, whatever, and they won't get beyond it. And there were those people with Israel too who would never get beyond the fact that she had an accent. Who would never get beyond the fact that her hair color was perhaps a little different. Who never would get beyond the fact that perhaps she's a little rough around the edges coming from Moab and that even though sanctification happens, it happens progressively. And so even though she's becoming godly, every now and then her her Moabite creeps out. Her past creeps out. And there are people who would never let her get Beyond that. And so he points out, the author does. So that they could be challenged by their own misconceptions. Here's someone that you will never let in your heart be part of the inside crowd because of a background. But yet they're a true Israelite. Who in our midst is perhaps from that kind of a background? Or has had those kind of experiences. And they don't fit the mold. And maybe, just maybe, they're exactly what God is looking for. And maybe God wants to challenge us that someone after his heart doesn't necessarily come from the right pedigree. But their behavior reveals an intense desire for seeking his will and his ways. So friend, friend, understand that there are people who are characterized by a behavior and a value system that were in opposition to God's people and God wants to protect his people God wants us to protect the church too that is why it's foolish for to us to let some stranger come in the door and then sure go work with our children right we protect because we know that people will seek to enter and harm. And so God wants to protect his people. And God remembers wrongs. You know, one of the great Christian teachings is that we turn the other cheek, right? But we do so not because we're doormats. We do so because we understand that our, t- our, our calling is to urge people to repent because the day is coming when the judge of the earth comes and every tear, every cry, every drop of blood, every act of violence or or molestation against one of his people, God will exact vengeance for. That's what Revelation says. And so we want people to repent. God remembers and that. He did to his people god remembers the wrongings done against you because he loves you but there are the people who have changed their ways and they've repented and they no longer associate with their with their former hateful behaviors and those god does not reckon as a moabite so right here right now where are you are you sitting in this church loving the fellowship meals, but your heart is far from God and hardened to God? Or are you perhaps feeling the weight of past sins and regrets of either things committed by you or on you, and you think that, man, that's proof that I'm beyond the pale? Or are you perhaps in here right now, and you come from a checkered past, but y- y- you feel like people judge you, Brothers and sisters, this book is all about how God accepts a woman who comes from a checkered past background because she has turned wholeheartedly to Him and He embraces her. We are called to be like Boaz and see past the background to see the faith. Who in our church needs our help? Who in our church is feeling empty? Who in our church is feeling beat down? Who in our church feels as if God has taken away everything? Find them out. And be God's hands and feet of restoration. Because God loves it when people turn to him. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you that you are willing to look past our background We pray that if there are any here who are clinging to priorities, values that are at fundamental odds with your word, that they would let go and give them to Jesus and embrace the ethics and values and priorities of the kingdom. We pray that if there are any here who feel like they are judged, that we would be gracious to them. Jesus, you accepted us despite our unworthiness. Help us to show mercy to those in our midst who need it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.